Hello, and a very warm welcome to the third episode of Tales of a Starry Night, a stories and science podcast on the wonders of the night sky. As I prepare this episode, we're in August, at the time of the waning moon. The night is falling earlier, and its first hours are moonless, perfect conditions to observe further afield into the realms of stars and planets. As a child growing up in a starless suburb, I was always excited and delighted when our uncle Pierre offered to take us to the Palais de la Découverte, a science museum at the heart of Paris. The highlight of the visit was always the session in the planetarium. We would sit in comfortable chairs and look up at a dome-shaped screen as the lights faded to simulate night falling over Paris. We would see the outline of buildings on the circumference of the screen, a few stars appearing as the artificial sky darkened, and then came the magic moment when the presenter switched off the light pollution and the night revealed its full beauty. A beauty that not so long ago would still have been accessible for free as a birthright. The stars we can see in a light polluted area are the same as the first appearing as night falls, the brightest ones. Looking up at this time, the middle of August, four stars are particularly striking. Arcturus, in the constellation of Bootes, the herdsman, visible towards the west, is the fourth brightest star in the night sky, an orange giant that we'll talk about in another episode. And there are the three stars forming what is known as the Summer Triangle. Vega, in the constellation of Lyra, the lyre or the harp, Altair, in the constellation of Aquila, the eagle, Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus the Swan. If you've had a look, you will also have noticed two bright objects, east of south, close to the horizon. Objects that do not twinkle like stars do, the planets Jupiter and Saturn, with Jupiter the brightest and leading their westerly motion at this time. But let's return to the summer triangle. Vega, also called Alpha Lyrae, the principal star in the constellation of Lyra, is the fifth brightest star in the night sky. It is a blue-white adult star 25 light years away, which means that we see it as it was 25 years ago, the time the light it generated then took to reach us. Next to Vega, and making the constellation easily recognizable, are four stars in the shape of a small parallelogram. They form the body of the lyre. Following ancient Greek myths, Lyra represents the harp of the famed musician Orpheus and was placed in the sky after his untimely death. The instrument itself, however, had been built by the baby god Hermes, as is told in the following myth. The cunning Hermes, son of Zeus and of the nymph Maia, was born in his mother's dwelling, a deep and shady cave of Mount Silene in Peloponnese. He didn't stay long in his cradle, and on the morning of his birth, as he stepped out of his abode, he was met by a tortoise who walked its slow walk and was grazing on the luxuriant grass that grew by the entrance to the cave. Here is a good omen, the young god said, and he playfully picked up the animal. Where did you get this beautiful patchy shell you are closed in? I think I can make a powerful singer out of you. And so Hermes returned into the cave carrying the tortoise and killed it to obtain its shell. He stretched oxide across it and fastened two horns to it, which he joined with a crossbar. Then from the crossbar, 
he stretched out seven sheep-gut strings. Hermes was thrilled with himself and tried the notes of his newly built instrument. He was so pleased by the clear song that resonated in the warm air that straight away he had to improvise a ballad. He sang of his father Zeus and of his mother Maya with her beautifully braided hair and of the love they had shared. But Hermes was a child and soon he was bored with the lyre. Leaving it in his cradle, he turned his mind to more mischievous deeds. That evening, as the sun was setting down beneath the earth, Hermes hurried to the mountains of Piera, where the divine cattle grazed in a pleasant meadow. There, he cut off fifty cows from the main herd and drove them towards the sea, making them walk backwards in the sand while he himself was hiding his footprint in sandal made of freshly cut leafy tamarisk and myrtle twigs fastened together. There was an old man still out, an old man with bowed shoulders tilling his vineyard, and the old man saw the robber child. So Hermes said to him, Old man, you will surely have much wine when all these bear fruit, if you remember that you have not seen what you have seen, nor heard what you have heard and to keep silent when nothing of yours is harmed. The man said nothing, and watched as the godchild hurried the cattle onwards through shadowy mountains, through echoing gorges and flowery meadows, onwards through the night. Then, as the moon shone brightly still, Hermes brought the herd to the banks of the river Alpheus. There was a high-roofed byre there, and drinking troughs in front of a beautiful meadow. Hermes led the cows inside, giving them water and plenty of fodder to keep them occupied. Then, then, the not-yet-one-day-old god learned the art of conjuring flames and built a strong fire on which he roasted two sacrificed cows. He left their hides spread out on a large, rugged rock nearby. Then, quickly, he returned to his cave on the forested Mount Selene, and no one Neither God nor mortal saw him, nor did any dog bark. He made no noise as he slipped back into his cradle, wrapped his swaddling clothes around him, and held his lyre tight in his left hand, pretending to be but a feeble baby. At about the same time, the sun god Apollo, keeper of the divine cattle, walked the slopes of Piera and soon noticed that fifty cows were missing. In his search... He met an old man grazing his own beasts on the pathway leading to his house. Tell me, old man born long ago, have you seen anyone driving the sacred cows away from their pastures? Oh, my son, said the old man, it is hard to tell all that one man sees, for many wayfarers pass this way, some bent on good, others on evil. But last night I might have seen but an infant following long-horned cattle. He drove them backwards away, with their heads towards him. It was dusk, and such an extraordinary sight that I cannot fully trust. I did not dream it. But as the man spoke, Apollo noticed the cattle's tracks pointing back at the meadow alongside some strange footprints, not of a man or woman, nor of any animal or creature known to gods or people. Looking up again, 
Apollo the far shooter noticed a long winged bird and understood by this omen that the culprit was his half brother, the son of Zeus and Maya. And so he went straight to Maya's deep shadowed cave on the forested Mount Silen and searched every single room and every single closet of the dusky dwelling. None the wiser, he addressed Hermes. Child, tell me quickly where you have hid my cattle, for my patience is limited and my anger is real. I will not hesitate to throw you in Tartarus, in this hopeless darkness from where neither your father nor mother will be able to rescue you. Hermes answered, These are harsh words indeed. Do you not see, almighty God, that I am but a baby, caring only for sleep and for my mother's milk? I was born yesterday, and my feet are soft, too soft to be running on rough ground. Do you keep cows? Well, I didn't know, but I'm happy to swear by my father's head that I am not guilty of stealing cows I didn't know existed. Apollo was not fooled by those crafty words, and both kept arguing so much so that they ended up taking their case to the council of Zeus on the heights of Olympus. Apollo spoke first. Father, he said, I come here with your youngest son, a budding robber who stole my cows from the slopes of Piera and drove them along the shore. I could see their tracks in the sand, but then they were lost on firmer ground and I do not know where they went. After his deed, this son of yours returned to his cradle where I found him and he pretended he spent the night there. Then Hermes spoke in a childish voice. Father, you know I cannot lie to you. This God, my brother, I dread. He rushed into my mother's dwelling early this morning, looking for cows I'd never heard of, accusing me, yet bringing no witness, threatening to throw me into dark Tartarus if I didn't confess a crime I haven't done. Why should I be responsible if he cannot look after his cows? I am but a child, and I do miss my mother now. Zeus laughed, laughed aloud at his child's cunning, but wasn't fooled. He bade his children to be of one mind and search for the cattle, asking Hermes to lead the way without mischievousness of heart. And the godchild had to obey, for he couldn't go against the will of Zeus. So Apollo, led by Hermes, soon reached the flowery meadow by the river Alpheus, and Apollo was relieved to find his cows in the high-roofed byre. But then he happened to look aside and noticed the two fresh hides stretched on the rugged rocks. You crafty rogue, he said to his brother. You were able to flay two cows, small and just born as you are. Hermes saw his brother was really angry and that he wouldn't see the end of it. So to appease him, he took his instrument out the liar he'd kept hidden under his left arm all along and began to pluck the cords. Apollo, the fierce far shooter, softened instantly and laughed for joy. The music went straight to his heart. Encouraged, Hermes added his voice to the song of the liar. He sang the story of the deathless gods and of the dark earth, of how they came to be and how each one received their allotted portion. And when he was done, the answering silence rang off his melodious tones for a while. Then Apollo asked, 
trickster and slayer of oxen. I can tell you now this song of yours is worth fifty cows. Has this instrument been with you since birth? Is it a gift? Did someone teach you the song? Never have I heard such wondrous music. Dear brother, Hermes replied, I am not jealous of my art, and this day you shall learn it too. If your heart is set on playing that lyre, be confident taking it to rich feasts and dances, for it teaches well whoever inquires of it with wit and wisdom. And now you have no cause for anger any more. Hermes held out the lyre to Apollo, who took and held it with reverence. Yes, I have no cause for anger any more. Here is my whip, and now you yourself can be keeper of the herds. Apollo sounded the strings and sang softly to the music, after which the reconciled brothers returned together the sacred cows to the slopes of Piera. Apollo is often represented with a lyre, yet some accounts suggest that he didn't keep the original instrument for himself, but gifted it to his mortal son with the beautiful-voiced epic muse Calliopeia, a young promising musician named Orpheus. The next story begins as Orpheus has returned to his native Thrace after taking part in the famous voyage of Jason and the Argonauts. Orpheus could not believe his luck. He had recently returned to Thrace after taking part in the Argonauts' expedition. Without him, without his lyre and songs, the sailors would have wrecked their ship against the sharp scaries that surround the island of the Sirens. Now back home, and hail the hero, he met and married his true love, the beautiful Eurydice. It was the morning after the wedding. Soft sunlight penetrated the bridal room, and Orpheus stretched and smiled. Eurydice was up already, and she had left with a group of nymphs to find coolness by the river bank. The young women were full of laughter. The sun shone, the joy of Eurydice was contagious, life couldn't be better. But the fates had other ideas. Eurydice didn't notice the snake sliding in the high grass, and the disturbed adder bit her foot. There was nothing to be done. Orpheus was called upon, but he could only cradle his wife as she lay dying. He spent the following days in stupor. Nothing could alleviate his grief. The trauma was overwhelming. His future was as if erased. Orpheus had nothing to lose, so he left alive for the kingdom of the dead. He journeyed to the gate of Tenare, to the south of Peloponnese, and as he walked, he played the lyre and sang his despair. So beautiful was his song that all in nature stopped to watch him go by. After some days, Orpheus reached the bank of the Styx, the river that must be crossed by the dead to reach the underworld. Charon, the hairy and calf ferryman, takes them across in exchange for a fee. The poet offered his song, and rough Charon was touched enough to help him. Orpheus then charmed his way past Cerberus, the dreadful slavering three-headed dog who barked once, but was soon settled by the poet's lament. Eventually, after wandering on misty roads through dark foggy landscapes, he came to the banquet of the dead, presided by the dark lord Hades and his wife Persephone. Orpheus, still playing his lyre, spoke thus. 
divine powers of the underworld. You rule over Earth's mortal creatures. I do not come here to challenge your rights. I come for soft Eurydice, my beloved wife. A treacherous snake robbed her of her youth. I tried to bear the pain of losing her, but you see, I love her too much. Love, Eros, is a god well known on Earth. Perhaps he is known here too. Perhaps he does unite you two. O divine Hades, divine Persephone, I beg you, please, allow that a new fate be woven for Eurydice. She died too young. She'll return later, when she'll have lived a fair number of years. And if this favour is refused, then please, allow that I die too. Ophir's eloquent words and deep-sounding chords touched the hearts of all the souls who heard him. Persephone shed a tear. Hades was moved as he had rarely been. He had Eurydice's shadow called and said, Go, Orpheus, return to the land of the living. Eurydice shall follow you and will be yours again provided you do not look back until her skin is touched once more by sunlight. So Orpheus left full of hope. The path was narrow, gently sloping upwards. There was a thickening mist, and the poet played soft chords so Eurydice's shadow could find its way behind him. But the shadow makes no sound, and Orpheus grew increasingly worried. Could he trust Hades? How could he be certain Eurydice was behind him? He could already see daylight in the distance, but as he was about to leave the underworld, doubt overwhelmed him. He looked back, only to see his wife's shadow stretch her arms to reach him as she was carried away by subterranean mists back to the land of the dead. For the second time, Orpheus lost Eurydice. Of course, he tried to return, to plead his case again, but Charon remained firm and refused to let him pass a second time. So with infinite sadness, Orpheus returned to Thrace. There, he looked for solitude and the solace of his music. Orpheus, then, was often found singing alone in nature. In Book 10 of his Metamorphosis, the Latin poet Ovid recounts how Orpheus sat on a hill on a grassy meadow with no shade to protect him from the Mediterranean sun. Yet as he began to touch his lyre, a whole forest assembled around him. Oaks, limes, beeches and evergreen laurels Ashes out of which spears are made, spruces and yews, sycamores, maples and the willows that grow beside rivers, and more trees again, an assembly of them enchanted by the music. Soon they were joined by a host of wild animals and by a multitude of birds. One of the songs Orpheus offered recounted the story of Zeus and the young mortal Ganymede, and as you shall hear, it relates to another of the constellations we are looking at today. After tuning his faithful lyre to his satisfaction, Orpheus began. Dear muse, my mother, inspire me the words that sing the glory of Zeus, the ruler of the universe, and of his bird, the eagle, alone able to carry the divine lightning. In the days of old, Zeus had heeded the eagle's warning and struck at the giants who threatened Olympus itself. 
and in the peace that followed, one day Zeus, god of all gods, noticed a comely youth herding his father's flock. The boy was resting under a tree in the coolness of the shade. He was smiling. His brown locks danced lightly in the soft wind, like delicate foliage flutters in the breeze. His thin and muscular body smelled of the warmth of summer. Ganymede, a member of the royal family of Troy, was, people say, the most beautiful of mortals. Zeus saw him and decided age shouldn't mark his handsome serene face, shouldn't damage his lovely body. He wanted the child by his side. So some say he took the shape of the eagle. Others say that he simply said the eagle as his messenger. An eagle went down. An eagle went down to the meadow and carried up the boy who fought back but in vain. Ganymede soon reached Mount Olympus where he became the god's cupbearer, he who serves the precious nectar to Zeus and his fellow gods. This story is represented in the night sky by two constellations, Aquila the eagle and Aquarius the water carrier, representing Ganymede. Although in the Greek myth, he might have been carrying nectar or wine rather than water. Both constellations were similarly known in more ancient times in the Middle East. The Babylonians saw Aquarius as a man pouring water from a jar, and alongside the Sumerians, they saw Altair, Alpha Aquilae, the principal star of Aquila the Eagle, as the Eagle Star. The full name of this star in Arabic is Al Nasr Altair, meaning the flying eagle. This story is also represented elsewhere in the night sky. Jupiter is the Latin equivalent of Zeus, and the third moon orbiting the planet Jupiter was named Ganymede because of the myth. In the Collins Guide to Stars and Planet, author Ian Reedpath describes it as a muddy snowball. It is the largest natural satellite of the solar system, and with a diameter of 5,260 kilometers, it is larger than the planet Mercury. A small telescope or binoculars on a tripod should be enough to spot Jupiter's four larger moons. They will look like tiny bright dots in line with the planet, for they all orbit it in the same flat plane, a bit like a mini solar system. But let us return to Aquila the Eagle and its main star, Altair. Altair lies between two fainter stars, the yellow Beta Aquilae called Alshain, the orange giant Gamma Aquilae called Tarazed in Arabic. The three stars are usually depicted as forming the neck and shoulder of the great bird. They seem to lie in a line quite close together, but this is very deceptive. Altair is closest to us, 17 light years away, then Alshain 45 light years away, and Tarazed is about 10 times as far, 460 light years away. If all three were at a similar distance, Tarazed would easily outshine its companions. So Orpheus sang the story of Zeus and Ganymede, and other famous stories of transformation recounted in Ovid's Metamorphosis. But he was still young then, an eligible bachelor to the many young women charmed by his music. Yet he refused all advances, still missing his beloved Eurydice. 
the women became jealous, they became angry, and eventually this led to his death at the hands of the Menads, women followers of Dionysus. They killed him and threw his dismembered body and his lyre in the river Hebrus. The currents carried them to the Isle of Lesbos later on. But eventually, the muses placed the lyre in the sky, or perhaps that was done by Zeus's ego. In any case, Orpheus' shadow joined that of Eurydice in the underworld. As for the menads who took part in the murder, they were punished by Dionysus, who transformed them into trees. So we have returned to the lyre. Beta and Gamma Lyrae are the two stars that form the side of the parallelogram furthest from Vega. In Arabic, Beta Lyrae, a double star system 882 light years away, is called Sheliak the Harp, and Gamma Lyrae, a blue-white giant 635 light years away, is called Sulafat, the tortoise, perhaps echoing Hermes' story. The name Vega comes from the Arabic Al-Nasr al-Waki, meaning the swooping eagle or the vulture, as opposed to Altair, the flying eagle. And in some illustrated sky atlases, for example, in Johann Hevelius' Uranographia of 1690, or in Johann Bode's Uranographia of 1801, the constellation is represented by a vulture or eagle holding a lyre. Birds are present then in this area of the sky. The third constellation we are looking at is Cygnus, the swan, flying down the Milky Way. Alpha Cygni, the main star in Cygnus, is a blue-white supergiant over 3,000 light-years away called Deneb, the hen's tail. Beta Cygni, a double star system 380 light-years away, is Albireo and represents the beak of the swan. In alignment, and between these two are Gamma and Eta Cygni, with Gamma Cygni a yellow-white supergiant about 1,500 light-years away called Sadr, the breast. Then crosswise, at the level of Sadr, Delta and Epsilon Cygni begin the wings, hence the Arabic name for Epsilon, Giena, the wing. In fact, Cygnus looks like a giant cross along the Milky Way, and as a result, it is also known as the Northern Cross. Swans are involved in various stories in Greek mythology. Zeus took the shape of a swan to have his way with Leda, the wife of the king of Sparta, who had consistently refused his advances. And also a young man named Cygnus was changed into a swan. Ovid tells his story as follows. The earth was in great danger. There were fires everywhere, dark smoke covering the land. The waters were receding, evaporating. Springs were drying out. Phaeton, the son of Apollo, had climbed on his father's solar chariot, but he was not strong enough to control the horses. The sun was flying much too close to the earth, burning everything in its wake. In a choking voice, the earth called Zeus to act. If it is your wish to destroy me, she said, why not simply use your lightning and be done? See how I am scorched by this fire when I strive each year to yield an abundant harvest for the people and cattle. The seas are suffering and so is the sky. The poles are burning. Your palace itself is threatened. We are on the brink of chaos again. She coughed and coughed and pleaded. 
do something before it's too late. From the top of Mount Olympus, Zeus could well see that something must be done. There were no more clouds to cover the earth, not a single drop of rain to ease her scorched surface. So, full of sadness, for mortal Phaeton was the son of his son, Zeus took hold of his three-pointed lightning bolt and threw it at the boy, destroying the chariot, freeing the horses, killing Phaeton, whose lifeless body fell into the Eridanus river. Many were those who grieved the loss of the tumultuous young man, and among them his great friend, Sickness, who remembered Phaeton, and remained inconsolable, and kept on wailing and wailing a ghostly figure haunting the river bank. Then he plunged, he plunged into the river, again and again and again, plunged into the current, looking for his friend's body, and when he found it, he gave his friend a proper burial. Zeus, touched by Sigmund's devotion, transformed the growing youth. His neck lengthened, Phrases appeared all along his body, and his arm stretched into wings. Webbing appeared between his toes, his mouth grew into a beak, and uttered a thin, reedy cry. Sickness, now Cygnus, took place amongst the stars, but the birds of his kind remained by the water. On pools and lakes, watery worlds as estranged from fire as is possible. The association of the stars of Cygnus with a bird is more ancient than Ovid by at least a couple of millennia. For the world's oldest known civilization, the four empires of Mesopotamia centered in what is now southern Iraq, its ancient name, Kuzaba, means bird of the forest, possibly a kite. So we've spoken about the three main stars that will appear first in the night sky, the summer triangle. But then if you wait till the sky is fully dark on a moonless evening, you will see that indeed the neb and the swans are in the Milky Way, and that the swan flies down it as if following a river. Then that on either side of the Milky Way, Altair and Vega are to be found. For the ancient Chinese, the stars of Cygnus are the magpie bridge across the celestial river, a bridge that once a year allows the cowherd, Altair, to join Vega, the spinning lady. And with deep respect, here is their story. Qin Yu was the daughter of the sun god, of the king of heaven. Like her sisters, she was a skilled weaver and spent the days at work sitting by her loom in her father's palace. She enjoyed her work, and was justly proud of the patterns she created, yet she felt something missing from her life. One day, she simply found it hard to concentrate. She sighed and looked through the window towards the great river at her father's pastures, and, and there, for the first time, she noticed Kian Yu, his, her father's herdsman, a beautiful, happy youth with fine shining eyes. He'd happened to glance up towards the palace at the very same time, and he looked straight into her eyes. They fell in love instantly, and after a brief perfunctory courtship, the king of heaven allowed the wedding to go ahead, 
she knew, and Kien knew, were overjoyed and so happy. They never tired of each other's company and could hardly bear each other's absence. Spending as much time as they could together, they began neglecting their duties. Chinyu's celestial loom was left empty. The divan cattle began roaming unguarded all over the celestial plains. The king's warnings made no difference. The lovers had only eyes for each other and no ears to listen. This threatening situation for the cosmic order could not carry on. And so the king banished his herdsmen to the other side of the tumultuous great river, separating the lovers who were forced back to work. The princess pleaded and pleaded, but to no avail. Yet everyone in the heavens took pity on the young couple, and finally the king softened. He agreed they could meet once a year on the seventh day of the seventh month. That day, all the magpies carried twigs to form a temporary bridge across the turbulent river waters, and the lovers can meet, shedding soft tears of joys, yet by the end of the day, the tears turn to great tears of sadness, which fall onto the earth, as Chinyu and Kenyu are forced to part again. This story is celebrated in festivals in, in China, Japan and Korea, and in Beyond the Blue Horizon, Edwin Krupp makes note of its seasonal overtones. The seventh day of the seventh month falls towards the end of summer, after the main rains have fallen and before the dust of winter settles in. It is time to prepare by calling in the cattle from the fields and by repairing the winter garments, a busy time of the year if any. The great river in the sky, Tianho, is the Milky Way. The bridge across the river is Tianjin, the ford in the sky, formed of the stars of Cygnus. Vega is Qin Yu, the weaving princess, the spinning lady, and across from it on the other side of the Milky Way is Altair, Qian Yu, the cowherd. Much more could be said about these constellations, but that is left for another episode. Next time, we'll have a look at the planet Venus. I woke up not long before dawn on August the 15th and she was just up, rising bright from the east, the morning star. Then its light disappeared in the glare of the rising sun. Perhaps it is early, but you might want to spot her. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please share it. If you have any comments, please do not hesitate to contact me. And until next time, goodbye.